0: So glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. And so as James read this morning, we've left the, the upper room, we've left left the place of Jesus' final meal with his disciples. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, the first verse says when he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples. Uh, and, and so we're Into the garden scene now, as as other Gospels uh, tell us, that the the garden named Gethsemane. And so what I want to do to begin with is to immerse ourselves in this scene. To to not just kind of skim over the surface of it and go, yes, Jesus was arrested in a garden. but, But to dive into the garden, to place ourselves into the garden. And be immersed in this story that we might see, in a sense, who are we in this story? How, how would we respond in this situation? <clears throat> and so I do want to reread the first two verses just to begin that immersion in the story. And, and so <clears throat> the, the uh, Apostle John says, When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so this is a garden that Jesus often went to. It was a familiar place to him and his disciples. That's how Judas knew that that's where he would be. In fact, if we jump out of John for a moment into Luke's gospel, Luke fills out the picture a little bit for us in Luke 21, verse 37. We're told... um, I'm in the wrong chapter, sorry. Luke 21, verse 37, that's why I couldn't find it. I was in Luke uh, 22, 37. Good stuff, but not what I'm looking for right now. Luke tells us that each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And so Luke tells us that not just that this was a place that was frequented by Jesus, but this is where he went every night to spend the night. And so I don't know where I got this picture, but I have realized in studying this passage that I've got this mental picture of the garden been like a public park. Like Jesus was hanging out with his disciples at Riverbank Park, and then Judas came along with some bad guys and took him away, that it was this public space. But actually, this was not a public park filled with crowds. It was a private walled olive grove outside of Jerusalem, away from the crowds. This was essentially Jesus' secret hideout with his disciples that he went to at night. He taught publicly in Jerusalem during this uh, Passover week and there was crowds and crowds around him. And and so if if they sought to arrest him there, they, they risked a riot because of the thousands of people surrounding Jesus. That wasn't going to be their opportunity. We're told that they were seeking an opportunity to arrest him. That's where Judas comes in. They would not have known where to find him at night. Because Jesus left the city with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley, went up on the Mount of Olives to this private garden. It was likely that that a, a, a wealthy supporter of Jesus provided this space for them to hang out and to spend the night. It actually gives new understanding to me at least why the disciples kept falling asleep because this, even though it was outside, this is where they went to go to sleep at night. And the thing is that those who sought to arrest Jesus wouldn't have known where to find him. But Judas did. But the thing is Jesus knew that Jesus was going to betray him. Betray him. Yet he still went to the garden he went to every night. He, he didn't change his plans. He had a meal with his disciples, we're told by the other Gospels, that Judas left early and then Jesus walked to the garden with his disciples knowing what would happen. And so this is a peaceful place away from the crowds, away from the city. It's quiet and then in verse 3 we read, that Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees that were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And, and so I've had this mental picture since childhood as well of, of, of kind of Judas coming up with, you know, four or five guards seeking to arrest Jesus. But, but this, the, the Greek words for detachment of soldiers, I'm told by the commentaries, means not temple guards, but Roman soldiers numbering potentially in their hundreds. And the officials from the chief priests, they are likely temple guards, they are are likely the temple police who've come to arrest them uh, on behalf of the, the, the priests and the Pharisees. They're carrying torches, they're carrying lanterns, they're carrying weapons that this commotion would have arrived at the edge of the garden that was peaceful and quiet. And so long story short, Judas guided an army to Jesus' secret hideout. This is perhaps why he's called the betrayer. This is real betrayal. And so we have this moment that that Jesus has been moving towards that he knows that this is going to happen and he continues his same routine every day uh, and places himself in that place where it's going to happen. And, And there's this army that marches on this quiet place, this secret hideout. And so the question is, how do they respond? How do Jesus and his disciples respond? How does Jesus respond? We we don't hear much about how the other disciples respond from John. The the story for the disciples centers in on Peter. And so this morning, I I, I want us just to take a look at how Jesus responds to this moment where the, the world marches to his doorstep with an army and how Peter responds. But but I don't want to just do this in a historical examination like this This is a a textbook that we just want to look at in a historical sense. The question I really want us to ask this morning is, how do I respond? How do you respond? Do we respond like Jesus or do we respond like Peter? Do we respond with surrender or do we respond with a sword? And so John 18, 4-6 tells us that Jesus responded with surrender. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am He. If you're looking for me, then let these other men go. And so Jesus responds with surrender. An army has arrived on the doorstep of his secret hideout, and knowing that he is the all powerful creator of the universe, that that even though this army is huge compared to the, you know, he and the 11 that are following him, he still had the capacity and the power to obliterate them. Yet he responds with surrender, with laying his life down. And and John gives us two key reasons here why he does that. Firstly, he, he knew what was going to happen to him. See, his surrender wasn't a weak moment. It wasn't a moment of fatalistic... Well, the writing's on the wall here. I might as well surrender. His surrender was a courageous surrender, not to the army on his doorstep, but to the Father's will. His surrender was a courageous surrender for the sake of the whole world. It was a powerful surrender. We see this in the stumbling of the guards, that, that Jesus saying, well, I am He. Is such a powerful moment that the guards fall on their backsides. And he has to repeat himself. And so the first reason that Jesus surrenders is he knows what the Father's will is. He knows his purpose is to walk this road, to lay his life down. And the second reason is so that his disciples would be spared. He says... If it's me you're looking for, then let these men go. And in verse 9 it says, This happened so that the words he had spoken, which we looked at last passage, was would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And so Jesus surrendered himself so that his disciples would be spared. You don't march out with this kind of army to arrest one person. The natural thing that would have most likely have happened in this situation was that Jesus and all his disciples would have been rounded up, arrested and taken off for trial. We see a hint of this when Jesus gets to the chief priest. We haven't got there yet, but, but they, they ask him about his teaching and his disciples, there's a sense of well, where's the disciples? Where are your followers? Why have you come alone? And so Jesus' surrender is a laying down of his life to save others. In in this situation, that's his disciples. But it's really a demonstration of how he lays down his life that you and I might be spared. Jesus' surrender to the world here, represented by the religious leaders of his day and the empire of his day, is a demonstration of how he lays down his life for the sake of the world. And I believe a demonstration of how he would have us lay down our lives for the sake of the world. Jesus responds with courageous surrender. And then how does Peter respond? In this moment, where Jesus is laying his life down so that his disciples would go free, how does Peter respond? Peter who said, I will never deny you, Jesus. Well, then at least in this moment, true to his word, we're told in verse 10, then Simon Peter who had a sword, which the the Greek for that, you know, don't think long sword, think dagger, maybe your biggest kitchen knife, drew it out and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Peter pulls out his little sword, which we must say is brave, at least, given the army, but also pointless. How does Peter hope to fight off hundreds of Roman soldiers with a kitchen knife? But it's not just pointless. Jesus goes on in verse 11 to say, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so Peter has completely missed the point of this moment. We might be tempted to commend Peter. At least he tried to put up a fight. At least he was on the right side. But he saw it as a complete denial, a complete rejection of Jesus' words and of Jesus' purpose. He was on the right side because when you're with Jesus, when you're you're fighting for Jesus, you're on the right side, but he was horribly, horribly wrong. We can be on the right side, but at the same time be horribly, horribly wrong. This fight in Peter's been brewing since Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus. You know, questioning his disciples about who who did the crowd say I am, and then who do you say I am? And Peter utters these words, you were the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, because this has been revealed to you uh, not by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Uh, and then Jesus goes on and it says in verse twenty-one of, of Matthew sixteen, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day, raised to life. And so Jesus has told them plainly about his purpose. How this being the Messiah, the Son of God, is going to be lived out. But we're told in verse 22 of Matthew 16, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have the mind... You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Another way we could say that is, you don't have in mind the concerns of heaven, but merely worldly concerns. And so this fight's been brewing in Peter, and he hasn't yet learnt to surrender it. And so I want to suggest this morning that Peter represents for all of us the times that we have drawn a sword fighting for Jesus. For some of us, that may have been a literal sword. I don't know your, everyone's story from start to beginning. Some of you may have actually literally drawn a sword to fight for Jesus. But most likely that sword looks more like a keyboard. That sword might look more like uh, your, your pen, your attitude, your words, just the way that you respond to the world might be your sword like Peter's. I think Peter represents for us all those times where we've, we've drawn a sword because we're on the right side fighting for Jesus. And I, and I want to be clear, Jesus is absolutely worth fighting for. But we fight for Jesus with our faithfulness. him not with our swords see Jesus is calling for us to be like him to lay down our lives for the sake of the world not to draw swords against it Peter might look like the courageous one but Jesus demonstrates true courage and so the question for us is who will we follow Will we follow Jesus and lay down our lives for the sake of the world that they might know Jesus their saviour? Or will we follow Peter and think we can be faithful to Jesus cutting off ears in his name? Who will we follow? From the garden the scene shifts to the trial of Jesus And the trial of Peter. See, Jesus and Peter both go on trial from this point. Jesus in a courtroom, Peter in a courtyard. And again, we see two different responses. Jesus, who responded to the army with with courageous surrender, is faithful. Peter, who responded with foolish bravado, fails. Fails. In John chapter 18, as the story continues in verse 19, and it's going to read a bit of a section here. Uh, we've skipped a bit, but we're going to come back to it. Of Jesus' trial. We're told that, Meanwhile, that the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who've heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of his officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is that the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what, it, what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then an ass sent him bound to Cephas, the high priest. And so... Jesus' response here in this trial might seem odd to us, but, but the thing is, we, when we understand something of, and I didn't before this week, and now I've studied a bit and understand the legal process at the time, legally, witnesses, not the defendant, should be questioned. And so Jesus is essentially saying, I should be receiving a fair trial here. He already knows what's going to happen. He's he's highlighting for us, really, the unfairness of his trial. He's demonstrating the unjustness for it. He's saying there should be thousands of witnesses that you could call to testify. Why, Why are you questioning me inappropriately? But Jesus stands his ground. He doesn't backpedal. He doesn't deny anything. In some of the other Gospels, they give us a fuller picture of this moment, a fuller picture of Jesus' words, and we're told <clears throat> that he, um, the ultimate thing that upsets the, the high priest at the trial is that he says uh, that he is the Son of Man and they'll see him coming on the clouds of heaven, that he does not backpedal from who he is, but is faithful. But what about Peter? To step back to verse 15 to 18, we're told that Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because he'd been arrested and taken off. And because this disciple, that's the other disciple, likely John, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was colder, cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. And so Peter, moments ago, is swinging a sword for Jesus. Now he denies him to a servant girl. Denies that he's a follower of Jesus at all to a servant girl. Now now I've got nothing against servant girls but but we need to understand that this girl is at pretty much the lowest rung or one of the lower rungs she's above slave perhaps but she's at one of the lower rungs of the social ladder she's not a roman soldier yet jesus denies being a follower of jesus and so the question we've got to ask is where did his courage go He was ready to fight an army for Jesus and now he's not ready to to acknowledge before a servant girl that he's a follower of him. And he might not have thought much about it. He might not have thought much about his first small denial, his first small act of unfaithfulness. And so I think this is the problem when we, when we have this tendency to swing swords or, or bash keyboards or, or mouth off thinking we're doing it for the sake of Jesus, that we're defending him. We all too often fail when we need to be faithful in the small moments. If we make our faith about fighting the world for Jesus, all too often where we fail and stumble is like Peter in this small moment where it seems convenient to say, I'm not a follower of Jesus, so we get to stand near the fire on a cold night. That's not where it ended for Peter. In verse 25, we're told that meanwhile, this is after Jesus' trial Before the high priests. Meanwhile Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too are you? He denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a bit higher up now, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Now this is someone who was in the garden. Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. And that's what Jesus had foretold would happen after Jesus, Peter had denied him. And so the thing is that once Peter had casually denied Jesus, it only got easier. Once there'd been one small compromise of his faithfulness, it only got easier as that compromise got bigger and bigger, as he rose up the social ladder, as he got more assertive about his rejection of Jesus. We're told in Matthew, to go back there, in Matthew 26, verse 74, That in this moment, this final denier, it says, said of Peter, then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. so the question is, how did Peter end up here? How did he get to this place? But I think the more important question, as I've said all along, is how do we? How do we be so courageous for Jesus in some aspects of our life and then in other aspects deny him with our actions, behaviour and words? because I believe that Peter's story demonstrates for us it's really the small acts of faithfulness, the courageous wearing the name of Jesus that matters more than the swinging of swords. The beauty is that this is not the end of Peter's story. We'll get to that. And it doesn't have to be the end of ours either. This story moves from the garden to the trial before the high priest and then it moves to the governor's palace, to Pilate's home. And there's a lot that we could draw out of this trial before Pilate and we'll get a bit more into that next week in the next chapter. But, but I want to focus on one key point here as we move towards a close. Because this exchange between Pilate and Jesus reveals something of of, of where it all went wrong, where this difference between response between Jesus with courageous surrender and and Peter with foolish bravado and then failing faithfulness. There's a key here to understanding that and, and the key is to understanding what type of kingdom is Jesus' kingdom. In John 18... 36 and 37, we read this exchange. Pilate has asked Jesus, is he a king? And, and so Jesus says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate, completely missing the point. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, in fact, The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And so Jesus says to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And he actually acknowledges that if it was a kingdom of this world, if it it was a competitor to the empire of Rome, if it was to re-establish Israel as a a geographical political kingdom, if, if it was to establish a kingdom with him on an earthly throne on earth in this world, then his followers would fight just like Peter had. But he says, unlike Israel in the Old Testament, That his kingdom, and the Greek word for this means more reign than kingdom. We think of kingdom as territory. The kingdom of England, and it's this little tiny piece of land. But Jesus is talking not of a, a physical kingdom, a territory on earth. He's talking about his reign, his rule. And he says it's not of this world. It transcends this world and transforms it. So he said of his disciples that they are in this world, but not of it because they belong to his kingdom. And so Jesus' kingdom definitely impacts this world. It seeks to transform this world. But there's no point, there's no plot of land. There's nowhere on a map that you can point to it. There's no political structure like democracy or... Parliament House or, you know, a a, a monarchy in a human, earthly sense. And so it's not established with a sword. It's not established by war or politics or arguments or swords or Facebook fights. And so when we take up a sword or a keyboard or an argument or an attitude like Peter, we fundamentally misunderstand Jesus' kingdom. And don't get me wrong, I believe that the followers of Jesus should be involved in in the political process of our world. We should seek to bring uh, the the essence of the kingdom into it, but, but we shouldn't think that we're establishing the kingdom of God through doing that. The kingdom of Jesus cannot be legislated into this world. The kingdom of Jesus shows up when those who submit to his rule and reign are present in this world, knowing that they're not truly of it. And so Jesus is calling us this morning, he's calling myself, he's calling you to surrender our lives, not take up swords. And so this story ends with a choice. The crowds get a choice to skip to the, to the end of John chapter 18. Pilate goes out to the crowd and he says, it's, it's your custom for me to release to you of one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Interestingly, some ancient manuscripts suggest that his name, full name may have been Jesus Barabbas, a false Jesus. We're told now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And so I've always had this understanding that, oh, Barabbas is this dirty, rotten scum. But but an uprising means that he sought to rebel against Rome's rule over Israel. Really, he's kind of like another Peter. He's someone who's taken up a sword fighting for Israel in a political sense. And so the crowd is given the choice between a Messiah like Jesus who lays his life down for them or someone who wants to fight with swords. We, we get to choose like the crowd whether we're going to follow in the ways of Jesus and lay down our lives for the world or whether we're going to take up a sword like Peter and Barabbas. Sadly, for this story, they choose Barabbas, but we know that that was God's plan that Jesus might lay down his life for us. But the cry of this story to you and I is who will we choose to follow? Not just who will we fight for, but who will we choose to shape our lives around? The one who swings swords? Or the one who lays his life down for the sake of the other. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know that I am a fighter, that far too often. triggered that anger rises up in me and I want to swing a sword thinking I'm doing it for you I repent this morning of all the times I've swung a sword or a keyboard or an argument or an attitude and called it righteous anger So this morning I pray that you would teach me your word. That you would teach me your ways. That courage would find me not with a sword in my hand, but in following your footsteps and laying my life down. I pray this prayer not just for myself this morning, but for your church, Lord. I pray for Yas Community Baptist Church that we would be found faithful in the small moments. That we would be found courageous in surrender for your name. I pray for your church all across this nation and all across this world as Jesus prayed for us those who are in the world but not of it may you give us fresh understanding of the nature of your kingdom. May you guide us in living out your kingdom, living out your reign over us in this world. Put simply, may we be more like you and less like Peter, Lord. And to skip ahead where we're convicted of your word this morning, I pray that you would give us moments of restoration as you gave Peter that sweet moment of restoration. May we be found anew in you. May we be made afresh to be like you.